Use that first job as a learning experience. You might not succeed up to your expectations. It might not be in the exact city or industry that you want to be in, but just view it as a valuable learning experience. And But you can carry those learnings forward with you. It is, I think, a good mindset for students to have. And I'm Libby Gladys. We're hosting the Tech Sales is for Hustlers special campus series. There are almost 5,000 colleges and universities nationwide, and only about 200 have dedicated sales programs. We are finding the leaders of those programs to get a behind-the-scenes look at how they're prepping the next generation of sales stars. Join us as we talk about their own career journeys, what advice they have for students considering a future in sales, and insights into what every student needs to know for a sales career. The Tech Sales is for Hustlers special campus series. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Tech Sales is for Hustlers campus mini series. I am Kristen Wisdorf. And I'm Libby Gladys. And today we have Riley Dugan, professor of marketing at the University of Dayton. Welcome, Riley. Well, welcome, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, we're very excited. You are our first professor and leader of a sales program who has joined us, who's from the Midwest. So yeah. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Yes, right. As a Midwesterner myself, where yeah. I am very excited. So we like to start, Riley, all of our podcasts with the same question we actually ask our campus interviewees, which is go ahead and take 60 seconds and give us your highlight reel. Tell us about you. I've had a very interesting and varied professional career. I been a person who's waved salmon in Alaska. I have worked on the Texas-Mexican border for an organization called Teach for America. I've worked for C-SPAN, interned for uh, Senator Mike DeWine, who's now the governor of Ohio, worked in accounting at Grant Thornton in Denver, and now here I am at the University of Dayton. I'm originally from Cincinnati. Just down the road from Dayton, I have my PhD from the University of Cincinnati as well, too. I have a background in a lot of different areas, not all of which are related. Okay, that is an incredible background. So you lived in Alaska? Yeah, for a summer, yeah. Oh my gosh, when did you do that? Tell us more about that. I'm highly yeah, was, at the time I was in graduate school at the University of Oregon in political science, and I quickly realized that the job opportunities for people who had PhDs in political science wasn't, wasn't very great. So one of the summers there when I was in Oregon, I took a ferry out to Alaska and worked on an island there for about three months. No days off, and it was a company, they owned a hotel or slash barracks we stayed in. We ate in their cafeteria every day. The, the salmon that they couldn't sell is what they fed us. So I ate salmon for 84 straight days, two meals a day. But yeah, so I think I maybe approached sales from a little bit different background than uh, a lot of other people. No kidding. That is incredible. That's like very adventurous of you to just pick up and take a ferry to Alaska. And wow, that's exciting. Okay. And then also you mentioned Teach for America. That's yeah. a very competitive, like a challenging role to get. How and why did you decide to do that? What was that process like? The first year after I graduated from undergrad, I was a teacher in the Catholic school system in Cincinnati. So I started off as a substitute teacher and then a long-term opened up and a long-term opening opened up and I, and I took that opportunity. And one of the things I really enjoyed in that role was seeing students' progression as readers and seeing the growth in just a few short months. And when an opportunity arose with Teach for America to do the same thing with students who predominantly were ESL, English as a second language, many of whom had recently emigrated from Mexico, 
I thought it was a great opportunity to help, to assist in any way I could. And then also to better my skills as a teacher, which I'm still carrying forward and using to today. And when people say, oh, teaching these students, it's so difficult. I'm like, no, it's not. Trust me, for America, that's the big leagues. It's a really challenging job. And so it really prepares you well to teach at any level, even college. Wow. You've had, like I said, this very interesting, kind of adventurous background living in the Pacific Northwest in Alaska and then down in Texas and you're from Cincinnati. How did you end up in sales? What was that moment where you're like, okay, I'm going to teach college students, but I'm also going to teach marketing and sales? Yeah, that's a really good question, Kristen. When I was getting my MBA at the University of Cincinnati, this was 2007. And around 2007, there weren't a lot of jobs to be had. And my sister is a business professor as well at Emory University in Atlanta. And she's served as a mentor for me throughout my life. And so I asked her, I said, well, the economy doesn't look good, so good right now. And I heard that, you know, when times get tough, marketing often are some of the first jobs that get cut. So what would you recommend that I do? And she said, yes, you're right. Do you like accounting? And I said, yeah, I, I, I took one count the course at that time. I'm like, yeah, I like it. Okay. And she's like, you always want to be sure to have a job, get a degree in accounting. So I stayed in another year, got another master's in accounting and took a job at Grant Thornton in Denver. And so while I was getting my accounting degree, we were always told that everything flows back to accounting. Accounting is the center of the business. And so we had an inflated opinion of ourselves. But what I quickly realized is working in accounting, specifically auditing, nobody wants an audit. The only reason that they actually get audits is because the government or the bank tells them that they have to, right? And how do you sell an audit? Because the procedures that you're engaging in are specifically specified, again, by the government. And so it's a commodity product, but it's also a really expensive commodity. And at the time, it was a difficult environment. Just like every other firm, we were struggling to sell business, to sell a new business. And I quickly realized that we didn't have people out there selling new business, then we wouldn't have anything to count. And it's true with every business as well, too, because sales is the front line. And if people aren't selling anything, the accounts don't have anything to count. Production doesn't have anything to make. So really, the whole strength and well-being of the business is critically dependent on salespeople and how well they perform their jobs. And so at that point, I'm like, I've always wanted to really focus on marketing and sales. And I don't really this job so much. So maybe I can go back to school again to get a PhD and did so at the University of Cincinnati, focused on sales. And then the rest has been history. Your background is so interesting because I think more times than not, sales just happens to a lot of people. I'm not at the universities that you attended and your education background is just like incredible. You've studied so much. Most students, they're just not exposed to professional sales being an intentional, I'm deciding to do this and, and commit to this. Based off your past experience with it being in so many different places, what did you do work-wise that may have given you that aha moment that sales would be a good fit for you? What do you think was the most impactful now that you are teaching, looking back on what you've done in the past? Because I feel that a lot of sales skills are built in these odd jobs that students are doing and they don't realize. So I'm just curious in your past experience, where do you think sales is um, applied? Maybe not intentionally, it was there. Yeah, that's a great question. If you read Daniel Pink's book, To Sell as Human, one of the things he says is, he's like, yeah, I'm a writer, but when I wrote down everything I did on a daily basis, I quickly realized that I was in sales because I'm trying to persuade my editors to accept a story. I'm trying to persuade my spouse and my kids to do particular things. So really at the heart of everything we do is persuasion. And for instance, when I was working on the Texas-Mexican border with fifth graders, you have to persuade them to want to read. You have to sell them on the idea that you know this is going to be beneficial for them, right? 
And if you can do that to a 10 or 11 year old whose mind is completely someplace else, he can sell anything. And I think just realizing that no matter what job I did, persuasion is key is a key element to it. It just made me realize that selling is something that we all do. And so it'd be cool if I could get a job to teach that. And one of the things too, that when I was getting my PhD, that I soon realized is, you know, when I was getting my PhD, I would teach undergraduates at Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati. And we'd always tell our students, go where the jobs, go in those industries where the jobs are. And when I was doing my research, I'm like, it's probably good advice that I should take as well too. So where are the jobs in marketing as a professor? And a lot of those jobs were in sales because a lot of schools were starting to develop sales programs and recognizing that, hey, most of our students are getting jobs in sales. Maybe it would be a good idea if we actually teach them to do that. And so I'm like, okay, these jobs are opening in this area that I'm interested in. It's probably a good idea for me to do my research in that area too, so I can just transition seamlessly into that. How established was the program when you got involved and how have you seen it change since you've been a professor? So compared to a lot of other programs, we are fairly well established. So we were very fortunate to receive a very large donation from a very successful former alum for a million dollars to help build out our sales center. And uh, Mr. Tony Christophic, who's the head of our sales center, has been really successful in partnering with very select organizations, which kind of takes care of our operating expenses every year. But it's grown significantly over the, the seven years that I've been there. And one of the ways it's grown is we've you know rolled out new course offerings. So for instance, I teach a sales negotiations course. So that's very unique around the country. I don't know of many other universities that do that. I also teach a course called uh, Value Analysis of Major Sales Engagements, which basically teaches students concepts such as total cost of ownership, return on investment, net present value. It gets students using financial metrics to justify the value of the solution that they're selling to customers. And as far as I know, we're the only institution that offers that at an undergraduate level. And I've made actually an interesting tweak to that course this year as well, too. Given the, the ongoing COVID pandemic and given that the, the job market might not be as robust as it was a couple of years ago. I introduced a book into that course called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, which is a modern take on stoicism. And so I might be one of the only professors in the country introducing ancient Greek philosophy to their sales students because I think a lot of the lessons that the Stoics taught and continue to teach are extremely relevant for not only how to handle your life, but how to handle your career as well, too, and the outlook you have on both of those things. That is very interesting. What was the name of the book? Obstacle is the uh, yeah. Way? The Obstacle is the Way, yeah. The Not Obstacle the is the Way. Yeah. All right. That's great. And I would agree. I haven't heard of a lot of courses like that in sales curriculum across the country. And one thing that I've noticed, I took sales classes when I was in college. And I remember my college was one of the few that had even sales curriculum. And yeah. over the last 10 plus years, it has boomed across the country with universities being more accepting and building of sales curriculum and sales programs. In the last seven years, how has your program and the curriculum changed aside from having those courses that other colleges don't have? Well, one of the things that we're thinking about ramping out or instituting and ramping up is an inside selling course. Because one of the things that we realized is that a lot of the jobs that are coming up now are in inside sales. One of our corporate sponsors, Gardner Incorporated down in uh, Fort Myers Beach, Florida, specifically hires people for inside sales coming out of college. And other, uh, other firms that we partner with do the same as well, too. And so that's something that I think has been a reflection of what's going on in the marketplace. So that's been a curricular change as well, too. 
Yeah, obviously, being that we are all inside sales hustlers here at Memory Blue, that is a decision that we absolutely see as being vital in building the skills. I think everybody envisions, if they, if a student is excited enough to get into sales that they want to study it, they probably envision themselves on a golf course, taking yeah. lessons, and while that might be your future in sales, most people don't actually start in a sales job like that, and you have to build those skills, whether it's in your new potential new curriculum with an inside sales course or just your current classes, how do you prepare students for the, their first job in sales? Because more likely than not, it's going to be a lot of rejection, a lot of time on the phone, a lot of emails sent, and they got to crawl before they can walk before they can run type of a job. Yeah, absolutely. So the University of Dayton and, and me specifically, we're really big on experiential learning that you learn by doing. I remember I was talking to an employee of one of our corporate sponsors a few years ago, and he had gone to a fancy pants Big Ten school and said, yeah, I had taken a negotiations course there, but we didn't actually do any negotiation. I'm like, what's the point of a negotiations course if you don't actually do any negotiation? No kidding. Yeah. And like in my course, students do seven in-class negotiations. They do two negotiations with me, which are graded, which are both salary negotiations. And then they also do a group role play negotiation, which I sort of moderate as well too, where they have to balance the competing needs of clients with also trying to maximize their own financial self-interest and all while working in a collaborative team setting where different team members will have different financial interests within the company. And so I'm a huge huge proponent of you learn by doing. And so in addition to instilling that in all my classes, I've coached quite a number of sales teams in the past that competed national competitions. And so the real value, I think, in those sales competitions is, is really not so much the competition itself, but all the practice that you get beforehand, all those reps, right? All those role plays that students go through, which when they graduate, we have a, a video system in our sales center, which captures and records those practice role plays. They've got a portfolio, maybe of 50 to 100 role plays they can show a prospective employer. If a prospective employer says, well, how do we know you can go through the sales process? Or, you know, can you show me some evidence of when you did a negotiation? So here you go. Here's 50 videos of me doing that. And a lot of it's just reps and practice. And fortunately, at the University of Dayton, we're not a tiny school. We have about, with graduate students, around 10,000 students. But we're small enough to where students can get a lot of Whereas at bigger schools, that may just not be as practical. So I estimate that with students, I do probably about 100 to 120 role plays and negotiations each semester in total, just in class. So it's a significant amount of one-on-one -on -one time outside the classroom, but I think it really pays off in terms of where our students are getting jobs and the sorts of salaries that they're earning just one or two years out after graduation. Yeah, definitely. I love that you have the ability to record and it captures and students can create a library of their real life practice reps. It's like they're creating their own highlight reel or their own game film that they can share. And we record, all of our SDRs are able to record their calls and store their best and coach on top of it and leave notes and comments for themselves so that if they're preparing for a morning, they can literally go back to their library and listen to their best calls ever to almost prepare them mentally for the day. So you're getting people the ability to do that earlier and earlier in their career, which is awesome. How do you get students who are maybe underclassmen, freshmen or sophomores, interested in the sales program? Are you finding more and more people are excited about sales? Or is it still take a fair amount of persuasion and selling when they're underclassmen to get them interested? What's it been like lately? Yeah, that's a good question. Like I found that a lot of our students who just naturally matriculate to sales do so because they have parents who are 
are in sales or because they have siblings who are in sales. So the University of Dayton is really unique. Uh, we have a really vibrant on-campus atmosphere. I think are the largest owner of single-family homes of any university in the country. And so imagine a Greek or sorority, a Greek fraternity row, sorority row sort of thing, but with instead of 20 houses, 500. And that's what our campus looks like. Students live in like their own homes with a couple other roommates and a really big student neighborhood that used to be planned housing for one of the really companies that was instrumental in developing professional sales, which was NCR. And so it's these old houses from around the turn of the 20th century. And so it's a really cool on-campus environment. And so what that promotes is a lot of students who come here because their siblings also came here. We'll have students where all four kids in the family went here and their parents went here and, and so forth. And I get a lot of students in my sales classes who I've already had their older brothers or sisters too. So it almost seems like something that's passed down in the family as well too. But with respect to recruiting students, one of the things I do is I go into the, the entry-level biz classes, right? The business 101 sort of class where as freshman students are getting exposed to all the different areas of business. And I go up there and give my 15-minute spiel one class as to why they should consider sales. And I talk about some of the salaries that students are making. I talk about the fact that sales gives you a lot more autonomy on your job, certainly than does working in accounting. It gives you a lot more kind of varied sorts of things that you do in a day than a lot of other elements of business. Excuse me. And I just really lay out the value proposition of why it's something that they should consider. And I think we have a lot of fun too. We go to these competitions and that's always fun. And in classes, when you're actually doing exercises, it tends to be more fun than just listening to boring lectures all day as well too. So I think students gravitate toward it for those reasons as well. I think everything that you guys are doing makes my job as a recruiter so much easier. And to your point, getting in front of students as early as you possibly can just to enlighten them prepares them so much better when they are taking that next step. And it provides that ability for them to decide that for themselves. I think the stat is like 88 or 90% of marketing grads end up starting in sales whether they want to or not. You're providing this purpose behind it, which obviously I, I love. You mentioned that you guys are, you do a heavy focus on experiential learning, learning by doing. And that's exactly how we structure our training process here. It's a combination of classroom style and then application. You've got to try it out. And if it works, awesome. If not, back to the drawing board. What is an exercise or assignment that you give your students that you feel pushes them out of their comfort zone and basically allows them to grow and develop the most? What is the most kind of uncomfortable exercise or challenging exercise or assignment do you give to your students that allows them that opportunity to develop? Great question. In my value analysis of major sales engagement course, we read the Challenger Sale by Dixon. And most of the sales roles, role plays, I think that students do in the University of Dayton too, and then also around the country are based off of the spin selling paradigm, which was developed in part by Neil Rack. And it's about asking questions of the prospective buyer. These spins an acronym standing for situation, problem, implication, needs, payoff, question. So you're sitting there for 20 minutes diagnosing problems that the buyer already knows. But I tell the students, I'm like, look, in the 21st century with the internet, if the buyer already knows they have a problem, they've probably already gone out and taken a lot of steps to try to rectify that problem. They don't need you to find them drowning in the water and just save them because they're professionals. They've already gone out and done things to address the problem that you're just now uncovering. Research has shown that about 75% of the buying decision is already made up by the time that the customer actually meets with the salesperson for the first time. And so we take a different view on the sales process in this particular course because I have students do a role play with me where they have to use the purposeful choreography methodology that's put forth by the challenger sale. And so the challenger sale is about this idea that really, if you want to provide value to your customers, you have to teach them something. You have to teach them something about how they can engage in business better. 
how they can do business better. Instead of solving their problems, find problems that they didn't even realize they had. So I play the role of a general manager at a grocery store in Cleveland, and the student's job is to try to improve my beer and wine sales. And so you know, they have to take me through this six-stage purposeful choreography where they're trying to basically tell me about problems that as a general manager, even I don't, even I wouldn't realize that I had. Right. So it takes a lot of specialized knowledge. It takes a lot of creativity. And it also takes the ability to incorporate financial metrics with this narrative storytelling mindset. So it's a totally different kind of approach or spin, no pun intended, on the sales process. It just gives our students sort of another tool in their toolkit that they can carry forward with them. Absolutely. I, I think sales classes expose students to topics and, and things that are so practical and applicable, regardless of their path, wherever they end up going. When you have a student come into maybe that first sales course, the bottom tier introduction to it, what's one thing you hope they take away after they complete that class with you? That really, no matter what job that they're going to go into, they're going to have to use selling techniques. And, and the reason I say that is because, again, persuasion is really at the heart, I think, of everything we do. And whether you're an engineer, whether you are going to go into accounting, finance, whatever, being able to persuade people more effectively is something that is going to be a very valuable tool in your toolkit throughout your professional career. Are you looking to join an industry with unlimited professional opportunity? It has never been a better time than right now to start a lucrative career in high-tech sales. Memory Blue has launched hundreds of careers for accomplished high-tech sales professionals from our offices coast to coast, and right now, we're in hiring mode. Working with us will accelerate your professional growth and place you on a path to success early in your sales career. You'll get world-class training through the Memory Blue Academy program and sharpen those skills with ongoing mentorship and coaching from our seasoned sales leaders. Memory Blue is an expansion mode and we have immediate openings in all of our offices. We have been named one of the fastest growing private companies in the U.S. by Inc. Magazine for eight straight years. Our award-winning culture has been recognized by third-party industry groups as the best in the business as we routinely add unbelievable benefits and rewards for our team. To learn more and apply to any of our openings, visit memoryblue.com slash careers today. Definitely. And then I am curious, I, I think in sales, you have to be self-motivated and you have to be able to push yourself and you're challenging yourself and you're helping it over hit your goals and, and you're pushing yourself. And a lot of the work that you're doing is going to showcase in however much money you make, which is one of the positives of pursuing that. What do you think your biggest motivator is as an educator or throughout your career? What has pushed you to the point that you're at right now? I think just seeing growth in students. I've certainly had students, I, when I first started at the University of Dayton, I was teaching the principles of marketing course, which is like the marketing 101 course. And so all students in the business college have to take that, even if they're going to go into marketing or sales or whatever. And then just seeing some students in that class who were shy at first and really didn't really want to speak up in class and so forth. And then seeing them take sales courses, I'm like, oh, I'm surprised that these students would be taking sales courses. And then seeing their evolution as students and as professionals, as adults throughout their career where they become more comfortable, they become more confident and assertive, and then get really good jobs. And I just had a student like that who graduated, I think, gosh, three years ago. And last year, a few years after graduating, she already bought a house in Denver, which is not a cheap place to buy a house. As 24 years old, if you're already a homeowner in an expensive city like Denver, you're doing something really well. And so I'm just like, wow, I remember you as five years ago, you're shy and a little bit maybe uncomfortable speaking up in class. And now look how far you've come. So that always been something that I really like and, and really like to see.
That's so true. I think the beauty of sales, at least I believe, is you're never really at the top of your game. There's always ways to develop yourself and get better. And as a, a professor like yourself, it'd probably be very rewarding and exciting to see people change in four years and then obviously keep up with your alumni and see how they continue to develop after they graduate. Riley, you had mentioned earlier in our conversation that you got and you gave the advice to go where the jobs are. Where are your students going? What either physically in terms of like location, being in the middle of the country in Dayton, and what types of industries and sales roles are they taking on these days? Yeah, even though we're the University of Dayton, very few of our students are actually from. As a private school, we get students from all over the country and all over the world, and that's just continuing to accelerate. Our students take jobs at companies on all corners of the United States. And so a lot of those jobs are in technology sales, actually. So last year, even in the pandemic, I placed a student at Cisco Systems, one at Dell. The one at Cisco Systems is working in Pittsburgh. The one at Dell is in you know, Round Rock down in Texas. I placed a student at Oracle. He's in New York and just a lot of various other places around the country. I recently had a student in my negotiations course this past year or this past semester who is from Cleveland. And he and his roommate, both of whom are sales students at the University of Dayton, uh, took jobs at VMware. And I just remember asking, oh, so did you negotiate your salary? And he's down. I'm like, why didn't you negotiate your salary? And then he told me what he was going to be making. I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah, you don't need to negotiate anymore. You're, you're already good. And I was just absolutely blown away. And, and so they're going to be down in Austin living together and stuff. And so yeah, our students take jobs everywhere. And tech sales is something that we really push. Some of our corporate sponsors like Reynolds and Reynolds, as well as Gartner are specifically in the technology industry. We also work with tech systems, which is high tech recruiting and so forth for, for tech professionals. So we really specialize in high technology firms because, again, that's where the jobs are. Oftentimes, they're very lucrative. It's a sexy type job. It's, hey, I'm working at IBM. I'm working at Cisco or Dell, a place like this. It's companies that all of their acquaintances, no matter what their age, they're going to have heard of those companies. So I, I think that's something that students really like. We're a bit biased, obviously, operating within the tech industry. Yeah. It's a great space to be in. It's growing and, and it's consistent. So that's great to hear that so many of your students are diving headfirst into that. With it being, there are so many different sales opportunities out there now. And with these programs growing as much as they are, employers are bending over backwards to be able to hire these students. And it's awesome because they have so much opportunity and so much to pick from. I'm curious, Riley, when you're working with your students, what advice do you give them when they are deciding between a variety of different roles for that first job? Yeah, I, one of the things I tell them is, look, you can take a job where you're not 100% sure, do I want to spend my the rest of my career at this position, at this company? Because the vast majority of the time, you won't, right? Students are probably going to be working at multiple different companies over the course of their career. And that's just the way the world works now. And I just tell them, use that first job as a learning experience. You, you might not succeed up to your expectations. It might not be in the exact city or industry that you want to be in, but just view it as a valuable learning experience and take those learnings two or three years from now and then maybe something opens up in the city or in the industry that's your preferred preferred choice and but you can carry those learnings forward with you just viewing a career in a, as a series of different peaks and valleys in a sense it, it is i think a good mindset for students to have that they don't have to find their perfect ideal job when they're 22 and they may honestly they may not even really know what they want to do with it. they may start in sales and say hey i want to get more into management or kind of an executive or maybe a training or a leadership leadership and development type role and it just really depends but just be open minded and be a lifetime learner and whatever like I, I tell them about my own personal experiences gosh I've done all kinds of different things and it took me basically until I was 35 to figure out what I wanted to do so don't don't feel like you have to have it all figured out at 22. 
But I feel like you're the perfect person to hear that and get that advice from because you have lived a lot of places and done a lot of unique things. And so there's a future that they can see in you and in conversations with you because you actually have gone outside of your comfort zone and used your experience to apply it to your job and your role now. Absolutely. What do you think differentiates like a top performer in your sales classes in comparison to maybe one one or two of the lower performers? What are some qualities that you really look for in really successful students that are extremely engaged when they're in your classes? It's just an interest in learning. In fact, I had a student just last week get in touch with me and then say how much she likes the books that she's been reading in class. And if I had any other book recommendations for it, I'm like, oh, do I ever? And so I actually took some books off of my shelf and said, here, you can have these, right? And she's interested not only in how to be a better salesperson. And in fact, she's her first job is with a large bank uh, here in the Midwest, Fifth Third, where she won't actually be in a sales role. But she's probably my most prolific, most skilled sales student. And the books that she got from me deal with all kinds of different topics about developing professional competencies, but also you know lessons in personal finance and things like this, to, which I think are extremely important and something else I, I work in my curriculum too toward the end. Just being interested and wanting to learn more than just what's in the class. The very top students always seem to have that where it's like, oh, this is a really cool book. What else can I read that's similar to this or maybe in this area uh, that will help me as a professional? I think that focus on curiosity is so important. That's what sales is. It's asking questions. It's seeking to understand and solving problems with a solution that makes the most sense for the person that you're speaking with. So that sentiment is perfect. We do talk a lot about the benefits of sales and being a recruiter for sales roles. I think that they're endless and there's so much just kind of career opportunity and development opportunity there. But obviously there are drawbacks to it. And I'm sure some of our listeners would like us to discuss some of those challenges that they should be expected to experience. Can you talk to us a bit about about what specifically you want your students to be ready for from a challenge standpoint in that first sales job when they transition from graduation? Yeah, rejection. <laughs> I know it's something uh, you both kind of alluded to earlier. Prepare to hear way more no's and yeses, and don't take it personally. And some of the research that I've done, actually, and it's been published, has shown that when sales students who go through collegiately uh, collegiate sales programs for the first eighteen months of their career, they don't perform as well as experienced hires. So, if a company's adding experienced hires and they're adding collegiate educated salespeople fresh out of college at the same time, then for about eighteen months, those experienced hires are going to perform better and so the collegiate hires might start to get discouraged. But what we realized and what we found out is about at about the 18 month mark, right? Those collegiate hires, their careers really take off, right? Like whoosh, it's this crazy exponential curve. Whereas the experienced hires, they just plateau the entire time. There really isn't any growth. And so I just stress, be able to handle rejection and also patience, right? It's so you're going to be climbing up this mountain for 12 or 18 months, but man, once you get to the top, it's an awesome view, but you're going to have to struggle for a little bit. Then once you get your feet wet, you get down the nuances of being a professional, managing a territory, all those sorts of things, everything starts to fall into place. It's okay, now I, I, I get this, right? Because no matter how much practice you have in school, it's once you get out in the real world, it is different. And so just being able to handle that and then being able to handle not doing well, perhaps at first, and if you're a student who has a 3.8, you probably never really failed too much in life. But when you're, yeah. when you're out in the real world, it's you're in the big leagues now and you're going to fail, but that's okay because that's what being a human and growing is all about. 
Yeah, you made such a good point about being patient. It's interesting. We purposely hire and we look for people who are impatient, right? Good salespeople are itchy and they're hungry. And they, like you said, you're, some of your better students, they're like gobbling up. What more can I read and learn? And that is exactly the type of person you want. But then on the, once they start the job, we're like, Wait, you have to be a little bit patient. You have to give it 12 to 18 months. In fact, our program is 15 months for that exact reason that you said, Riley, because you you will be more successful long-term if you give yourself the time to learn the fundamentals. So we're looking for impatient people and then asking them to remain patient in their first job in sales, which is kind of wild. What misconceptions do you do you think most people have about getting into sales? Or are there any misconceptions that you debunk early in working with students who are in the first couple sales classes or courses with you? 100%, right? So the common stereotype is salespeople, oh, they're smarmy and sleazy and the, the used car salesperson. And for me growing up, it was always a telemarketer calling us while we we're eating or occasionally even a door-to-door salesperson. And I tell them, look, that's not what sales looks like, at least not the types of jobs that we're going to place you at. But I think unfortunate stereotypes of salespeople persist in the sense that it's like, oh, the kids who aren't smart enough to do accounting and finance, they're going to go into marketing and sales. Or, oh God, just like being a garbage man, somebody's got to do it. I guess Riley's kids are going to go into sales or whatever the case may be. But I tell them like, look, Sales requires an extreme level of intelligence because you have to be adaptive and you have to think on your feet because no two customers are the same. And it's like in sports, like a team might prepare for an opponent the entire week and work out a strategy about how they're going to attack that opponent. And then they get to the actual game and it's like, oh crap, the strategy that we had devised is completely irrelevant now that the team we're playing is doing something different than we anticipated. But they can't just say, stop, we need a couple more days to figure out a strategy. It's like, you've got to adapt on the fly right then and there. And it's the same thing in sales. So preparation is so important. You've got to prepare for, you know, your, your, Roll call or your meetings with your customers, doing role reversal, role plays, things like that are going to be so valuable in that regards. But with all the preparation that you do, you also have to be willing and able to change course, perhaps. If, oh, okay, well, you thought you were going to have a 30 minute meeting, the buyer says they can give you five minutes out in the hall, right? Or, oh, you thought you were going to meet with somebody from production. No, actually, you're going to meet with somebody from finance and account. And so being able to speak those different languages, understanding people's different value drivers and doing that on the fly and changing things on the fly requires a great deal of intelligence. And our sales students in particular are extremely bright because they're able to do those things. Yeah, it's not even just intelligence, but good salespeople, lead salespeople have a high level of emotional intelligence as well. You have to prepare and you have to know your, be ready and know details and think on your feet. You also have to be able to adjust and adapt to the people you're working with and handle that judiciously and empathetically. And so I agree, you're doing the work for all of us by putting out there like that sales is a, an incredible profession and you're preparing the next generation of sales, tech sales folks too, which is really exciting. So I want to transition and ask a little bit about you directly. So when you think back to your career and your life, is there a manager or mentor that you've had in your life or currently that has really stood out to you and has uh, taught you a lot or been your favorite? Uh, I've been fortunate, I think, to have a lot of good bosses and also a lot of people who haven't bosses. And you can learn from both. I've learned that this is the type of work environment that I want to be in. And then also, this is the type of work environment that I don't want to be, right? And, and oddly enough, I think probably the healthiest work environment that I ever had, and probably the boss that I appreciated and liked the most was 
when I was in graduate school at the University of Cincinnati, I had a night job working at a Frito-Lay plant where basically I just grabbed boxes of chips and then loaded them up into trucks from, gosh, you know, six at night to sometimes at three in the morning to help pay my bills. And just working in that environment, it, what it showed me too was that there's a whole heck of a lot of smart people out there doing jobs that may not be quote unquote white collar or professional, but there's a lot of in, in, really intelligent people out there. And maybe those individuals didn't have the chance to go to college for whatever reason, or it wasn't something they're family stressed growing up. And that's something I try to instill in my students, the privilege they have of being at the University of Dayton, being able to attend college. But And it's you can learn something from every job that you have, right? Everything that you do, whether it's even being on like a high school sports team. How did your coach interact with you? How did your teammates interact with you? What did you like about that? What did you not like about that? But just always being open and receptive and learning and constantly trying to improve yourself, I think is something that I've tried to adopt in my life and hopefully I incorporate in my students as well too. Riley, you have such a unique kind of like openness and a unique way of approaching new experiences and tackling them head on. And I think that is a true testament to how much you can gain in your past experiences that ultimately lead to where you're at now. And it doesn't all have to necessarily make sense in the moment, but looking back, each step brought you to where you're at. I'm curious if you have a life lesson that you wish that you didn't learn the hard way through those experiences, if you could go back and know something specifically that you had to learn the hard way, what would that be? Well, one of the things I would always recommend to folks is, you know, particularly young folks, is when you think of your career, don't think of it as running away from something, running away from a job, or I'm running away from a company. Always view it as I'm running towards something. And so one of the things I found beneficial at the time when I was doing all these different sorts of things is whatever was the next step, right, the, the next job or whatever in my career path, I always felt like for one reason or another, it was going to be better. It was going to be an improvement. I never felt like, gosh, I made a mistake here. I screwed up and taking these terrible lessons with me. I just try to take it for what it is and move forward and view whatever I'm going to do next as an exciting opportunity. So I think it's really a mindset thing more than anything else. And one thing I would tell any college student, and, and this is something I, I harp on in my classes all the time, is save your money. Invest from the very first job uh, that you have. And that's something that I've done. But even when I was doing a lot of quote unquote menial type jobs, I was saving money. So for instance, when I worked in Alaska, I the money that I saved from that job was not much because I had to pay off some student debt. But the money I saved, I invested in Oracle stock and that stock went up 500% so that when it came time to buy my first home here in Dayton, I just used that stock to buy, put a down payment on that home. And so it's this idea that if had I not done that, had I spent it on something more frivolous, I wouldn't have been able to be a homeowner. But just saving your money right away and just no matter what it is you're doing, we'll just give you more flexibility later on in life to do the things you want to do. So I know that's a little bit off topic, but I think that's an important lesson that, that all young people in college or who are just out of college who might be hearing this uh, really should know. No, that's such a good point, especially when you get into sales as a career, when you start actually like figuring it out and doing well and taking home those big commission checks, it's a good reminder to have from someone who's lived it. And also the fact that you're not a afraid of hard work. I'm sure working in Alaska with salmon, yeah. eating salmon for what was it, 84 straight days? That's not something that a lot of people would be the first to sign up for. Yeah. So not only were you making really smart choices for your future, but you're doing the hard work that a lot of people shy away from as well. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's really good. What would you say so far, and you got a lot of career and life left, has been your biggest win or one of your biggest wins? 
Um, I think getting married to the person who I got married to. And so that's been, I think, the best decision I ever made in my life. And it's not a professional decision, but it's a decision that's going to impact you for ideally the rest of your life. Finding the right spouse is so extremely important. That's probably the best decision I ever made. And I think the best professional decision I ever made was coming to the University of Dayton. It's definitely a school that I think kind of suits what I'm looking for, which is not only a focus on research. Some of the, the Big Ten schools, for instance, are just researching. Yeah, as long as you don't harm a student in the classroom, then you're fine on the teaching things. But you know, at the University of Dayton, we really do stress a teacher. And that to me is just so valuable and so rewarding because that's, to me, it's more enjoyable than anything related to getting something published or making a conference presentation or anything like that. Just seeing growth in students and having an opportunity to impact that in some small ways is really meaningful. We've talked about so much on this podcast. This is, you are honestly one of the most interesting people I've ever met. And my, I, I have a question for you. What is your superpower? What would you consider to be your own superpower as you've developed so much in your career? You have a wealth of knowledge to share. You educate. But what is your, if you could just summarize it into one superpower, what do you think it would be? I don't think I, I, think, I, don't think I have any superpowers because you know, there certainly are people who are better teachers and better researchers than me at various schools throughout the country who I've met. We've got in the sales field so many great sales educators and great sales researchers. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to work with a lot of them and, and to collaborate with them. But I think one of the things that I'm good at, and I think that's important, is I'm really able to focus well. And the amount of hours I put in work per day are probably a lot less than what a lot of people put in. But man, when I'm working, I get down to it. I find that 30 minutes of focused work oftentimes beats two hours of kind of unfocused work where you're on social media or me being a huge NBA fan, like, oh, I wonder what the Cavs did, the trade deadline, right? There's time for that, but when it's time to work, it's time to sit down and get at it. And that's been something to for me where I have honestly a tremendous amount of free time because when I do work, I work. And then when the work's done, and that might be four or five hours a day. Okay, cool. Rest of the time is mine. That's great. And that's also to wrap this thing up nicely in a bow. If you work hard and you choose sales as a profession, yeah. you hopefully will also have a lot of free time and be able Absolutely. to enjoy Absolutely. fruits of that type of job. Riley, we very much appreciate you joining us today. This has been absolutely incredible. I'm really in awe of your background and the experience you've had and how hard you've worked to get where you are. I know our listeners are going to be very excited to hear about your story. And thank you so much for sharing a little bit of Dayton with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the conversation. Taking an individual's raw potential and turning them into a thriving sales professional takes the right training. That's where Memory Blue Academy comes in. Memory Blue Academy teaches participants the fundamentals of sales development and all aspects of a lead generation role, regardless of the level of professional experience or background. The course kicks off with a two-day intensive boot camp session followed by a six-week ongoing educational program. This is the program every single Memory Blue SDR undergoes at the onset of their tenure. The curriculum covers a wide range of topics, including list building, objection handling, effective sales emails, and more. Participants will be shown how to successfully execute a diverse set of sales activities in a very short time, experiencing tangible and lasting skill growth. To learn more and sign up for a seat in an upcoming session, head to memoryblue.com slash academy. Thanks for listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review after the beep. 